Coming up on episode 75 of the Upful Life Podcast. Because this was this was the incredible thing back then. Every record store had something special, you know, uh, featured a different kind of label, different kind of artist. So you went in there and, and everybody knew us somehow and, and they always gave us the best stuff. So this, this was why our record boxes back then were pure gold. It was everything we had in there was collected from around the world. So we were so far ahead of everybody. It was. This is not not existing anymore. This, this yeah, kind of and and and, thing, and but it was. This was great back. That then. was fantastic, and there was no internet to search for anything. We brought out the Chistoli peep, and we had an advertisement in the Straight No Chaser magazine, which did a little bit, and Charles Peterson did a little bit, uh, did some help, of mm-hmm. course. But the main breakthrough probably was then to do the remixes. The thing is, we never had a manager. We always did the connections ourselves. So we were actually phoning up people, introducing ourselves. I remember the old story when we we went to London, phoning up Ninja Tunes and say, hello, we're here. And we just walked to the office, the same with Wolf Sound. But we always had, you know, our business card was the the record we had, the G-Stone EP. And then we we started to do the remixes. And then the, the stone somehow was rolling, you know. I was a little bit scared before I went there because I I didn't know if I if I if I can deal with the whole situation millions of people in a tent or in an RV and 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 you know having uh, to share a shower and all this you know but once I was there it felt amazing it felt really amazing and the the first night we played was probably one of the best gigs we ever had. This, this, this first, the, the first one uh, on the, on the Soul Sonic stage was just, just from the sheer energy that was there, from the people. You know, we started. There was two hundred people. Ten minutes later, there were two thousand people, or even more. I don't know. And then you had all. We saw all the art cars in the back coming, and they all made movements. They danced to our set. It was, it was, I, I get goosebumps think, talking about yeah. it. It's, it's such a meaningful thing to do. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know. Yeah. We just, I mean, yeah. I just stum- stumbled yeah. in, really. Yeah. I, did, I didn't, I didn't know. And then when, they, when we arrived, it, there was a, a thing said, this is not a festival. Yeah. Uh, this is not a typical music festival. Yeah. And, and slowly I understood what they mean that it's more yeah. like a, a state of mind, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, 
and this is episode number 75 coming at you live and direct from the vibe junkie studio in oakland california staying alive 75 and let me tell y'all the vibe is high so grateful you are tuning in Yes, indeedy. Episode 75 of the Up for Life podcast is proudly brought to you once again by our friends at IMAVL, Independent Arts and Music of Asheville, preserving and promoting the creative community of Asheville, North Carolina since 2012. Live stream installations in several area venues. They stream six nights a week, several shows on a given night. It makes Asheville the first city in the world with its music scene aggregated onto one channel. 3,500 concerts in the archive, national, local, international. There's tons to explore. And they're based out of the world-class Echo Mountain Recording Studios, where they produce an original series called Echo Sessions. They have six seasons on PBS with all kinds of artists, people that have been on the show, like Les Special and The Nth Power and Eric Krasno and members of the Motet. The streams are free to watch and a free service for the bands and artists at the venues that they are installed in. Now, IMAVL is a nonprofit, so people can donate to their efforts to support the arts by going to the website, imavl.com or scanning a QR code on any recent show in the archive. Passionate about the city they live in? Amazing musical community in Asheville? Support IMAVL. imavl.com. Don't stay home without it. say thank you to our sponsor love that baby love that baby.net is the home base shout out to my man aaron the founder and visionary behind love that baby i've been rocking this gear for a couple years now uh anytime i wear the love that baby hat it's like a black corduroy with like a fluorescent infant with sunglasses on it anytime i wear it people stop me ask me about it or yell out the shoe or the LTB, which is kind of like code talk that you're down with Love That Baby. Their brick and mortar store is based in Wilmington, North Carolina, but they do ship all over the world and they make all kinds of handmade goods, hats, beanies, t-shirts, baby gear, sweatshirts, tank tops, all kinds of designs, some Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia adjacent styles, home team, they got trucker hats, flat brims, camos, five panels, coffee mugs. You might ask yourself, what is Love That Baby? It's a movement to unite humanity. 
They created that baby with everybody in mind. No matter who you are, where you're from, one thing that we all have in common is at the end of the day, we're all somebody's baby. So you have to love that baby. I gotta agree. I gotta concur. I love that baby. Through their art, they hope to share life through their lens. Like a baby, some days are filled with tears and others with laughter. So check out lovethatbaby.net. They've got tons of goods. Really cool vibe and... I love rocking this stuff when I go out to festivals. So shout out to my man Aaron. Thank you for the sponsor. Lovethatbaby.net Yes, this is really fucking happening. But before we get into the intro, as usual, the up full update, I'm going to try to keep it short and the intro short because I imagine we have some new listeners that aren't necessarily here to, for me to pontificate for 15 minutes before we hear from the guests of honor. But I do want to let y'all know the up full update. I've got a new article out on UpfulLife.com. It's a detailed feature on Say She She's recent concert here in the North Bay, the Hot Monk Tavern. Shout out to my man Sergio Rios from Oregon, who's also playing in the backing band of Say She She. Had the good fortune of uh, checking that out with my wife a few nights ago, and I wrote an article that Say She She just shared in their Instagram stories. So super stoked on that, super stoked on them. Highly recommend you both check out the band and, if you can, my story as well. Um, also, going to have Sergio on the pod in the coming months. We uh, have in discussions just trying to work out the scheduling, so excited about that. And want to let everybody know, if you're picking up what I'm putting down at the Up For Life podcast, please rate and or review the Up For Life podcast, preferably on Apple Podcasts, but really on any platform of choice. It does a whole lot to send those algorithms in this direction and bring us new listeners, new ears, new souls, and that is a beautiful thing, and we give thanks. At the very least, please smash that subscribe button so you know when something new drops from the Upful Life. And if you have the time and are so inclined and you want to throw me a couple dollars for making you holla, you can go to upfullife.com. There's a support button in the top menu. Send me a Venmo. It's so appreciated. I do this work out of the love and the passion, but I do like to get supported whenever possible. So there's a Venmo link there. And if you want to send money another way, just send me an email. Hit me up at b.getz at upfullife.com, not just to send me a few bucks, but to let me know how you're feeling about the show. 
Give me any kind of reflections or suggestions or nuggets you loved or constructive criticisms. I love to hear it all. I love to hear from the people. That's b.getz at upfullife.com. And I want to shout out Talia Keys. She's been on the pod. She's the homegirl down in uh, Salt Lake City. She's got a fantastic new single out. It's a cover of the Eurythmics Sweet Dreams. I did a little promo work on this project, and and I work with her uh, time here and there. And I'm a big supporter of what she does, so I wanted to give her a shout out and uh, let you all know to check out Sweet Dreams, Talia Keys, wherever you hear music. Now let's get into episode 75. Yes, indeedy. Could let this track ride out forever. Because I'm kind of pinching myself. This is an all-timer. And, uh, you know, if if you had told my 24-year-old self that this was happening, I wouldn't have believed it. It's two in a row. Blind Melon last week. Last episode, I should say. And another honor, privilege, and just absolute thrill to welcome Kruder and Dorfmeister. Richard, Dorfmeister, Peter Kruder. I mean, whoa. Now, last time, uh, I had like an equally personal, deeply rooted love letter type relationship with uh, Blind Melon and, and Roger Stevens. But unlike last episode, I'm not going to do a 15 plus minute introduction. Uh, Mostly because I anticipate that there'll be some uh, new listeners, different listeners, global listeners that are maybe not as familiar with the format or my personality. And I'm going to save some of the more like personal rabbit holes and remarks for the afterglow section, which will come directly after the conversation with Richard and Peter, which just took place the other day um, on February 15, the morning after Valentine's Day. Uh, and... I had just a short heads up because, you know, I'd pitched them the idea, maybe coming to the Denver show or even San Diego, but they were worried about travel and time. And, you know, I I just hail married a Zoom and they were down. Richard hollered back immediately and said, how about tomorrow? Um, So it was 9 a.m. here, 6 p.m. in Vienna. They're in their studio in Vienna creating. There's a wall of vinyl behind them. It was surreal. Um... And I, I had to comport myself as a journalist and a professional, but also like 
I just was, you know, having somewhat of an out-of-body experience at the same time. Um, now, many of my listeners are at least moderately familiar with Kruder and Dorfmeister. Um, if only the music, maybe their story, um, you're going to be intimately familiar in just a few minutes. But for, you know, purposes of just setting the groundwork, I'm going to read from the All Music biography. Uh, by a fellow named Paul Simpson. The resident advisor bio is super dope, quite lengthy, and as is the Kruder and Dorfmeister bio. And I was even just going to read their own bio, kruderdorfmeister.com backslash about. But even that would take a while, and uh, I think something more succinct is appropriate here, since you're going to hear a lot of this in their own words momentarily. But... Just to lay the groundwork a little bit, we'll do the, uh, you know, standard all music. Austrian producers and DJs, Kruder and Dorfmeister helped shape the sound of the after-hours electronic music genre known as downtempo during the 1990s, and their presence has loomed large over the scene ever since, despite their relatively small discography as a duo. First appearing with the 1993 EP G-Stoned, the first release on their similarly titled record label, G-Stone, The pair established a relaxed, organic sound influenced by acid jazz, dub, and mellow hip-hop. Two mixtape albums, both released in 1996, additionally embraced atmospheric drum and bass. They built up a lengthy resume of remixes for a diverse array of artists, from Roni Size, David Holmes, Depeche Mode, Bone Thugs and Harmony. Several of these and more were collected and mixed into the K&D sessions from 1998, which was met with acclaim upon release and continues to be one of the best-selling down-tempo trip-hop releases. The two producers have remained active with solo work and additional projects, most notably Tosca, which is Richard Dorfmeister's duo with Rupert Huber, and Peace Orchestra, which is Peter Kruder's uh, side project. He has numerous others. And then they came back in 2020, unearthing material that had been shelved for 25 years for an album called 1995, Um, They're both born in Vienna in the late 60s. They formed their eponymous duo in 93. They found a G-Stone Recordings that same year. The cover art for their debut EP paid tribute to Simon and Garfunkel's bookends and gradually became iconic in its own right. So with the collection success escalated, the demand for proper K&D full length uh, was high. So the pair remained elusive and kept busy with individual projects and then came back around and decided to celebrate the release of 1995 and subsequent to that the 30th anniversary tour which is ongoing and that's kind of where we pick up in this interview now uh without getting into my own personal story too much i would like to just add that um i wrote an article about them when they came through burning man and san francisco show a very lengthy piece uh which they somehow found and and shared called it brilliant it was one of the great honors i've referenced it a time or two on the pod but i think they kind of planted the seed and and uh for them to you know want to speak with me because they really haven't done a ton of interviews for cats that have been around for 30 years um so i was honored and and really touched and and that they not only chose to speak with me but gave me over an hour of their time together in vienna and you know if you're curious about that, I'll, I'll drop the link 
to my article. It's lengthy and takes you all, all the way from Burning Man to San Francisco and many points between and the Wayback Machine. But in that article, I explain how candy back in the late 90s were like my gateway drug. Shout out Ross Kaufman for playing me the KD sessions for the first time. Along with LTJ Bookum, Candy basically gave me the keys to the kingdom, and it was a full circle moment because it wasn't until I went to Burning Man 10 years ago, 11 years ago, for the first time that I really like fell in neck deep to electronic music. But the embryonic seeds and 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 the very very like you know earliest experiences I have with the music can be traced back to Candy Bookum, DJ Shadow. And so it was a full circle moment for me and for them, as they'll explain in there. And that's what made this so much symbiosis and, and kismet was uh, just how it all came together. And, and I've been waving the K&D flag for many years, going back to those early days in the 90s, like getting hip to it and, and never would imagine that I would have an opportunity to speak with them. So I kind of just I made a lengthy outline, but I, I rolled the dice and and kind of let them talk about what they wanted to talk about. And they did a lot of talking and it was great stuff. So I am very proud to present uh, this conversation with Kuderendorfmeister uh, from Vienna on episode 75 of the Up for Life podcast. I'll have some more thoughts on the back end of this chat. But uh, buckle up. We going in. Yes, indeedy. Today is a very special and really important day in the history of this podcast and in my life as a journalist. I am joined all the way on the other side of the world in Vienna, Austria, by the great Kruderendorfmeister Richard and Peter. Thank you for your time and welcome to the Upful Life podcast. Thanks for having us. Hi there. Yeah, I mean, it's just I'm pinching myself. It's 9 a.m. here in Oakland, California, and it's 6 p.m., out there we're in in austria and the two of you in a studio with a wall of vinyl behind you i i just have to say this is like uh life outside of life in a lot of ways uh, and if i could tell my 22 year old self uh that this was happening i probably wouldn't believe it but uh again a big honor and privilege um i want to start with the here and now you're celebrating 30 years around the world i had the good fortune of, of seeing you twice in september here in the states I know you've been uh, all over Europe. Can you can you tell folks about uh, what the 30th anniversary tour is? You know the audio visual component, how you approach uh, you know performing your your whole career, and also keeping it relevant for for today. Take us through the 30th anniversary tour. We basically started with the idea to do it, and then um, we kind of mapped out a plan how to play the show incorporating all the styles that we did over the last 30 years and uh, we had a we have a great visual artist Yasha Suess who does the visuals and he's actually uh, living right next to the studio so it's, it's very convenient and uh, together we developed the show and uh, 
the the version you saw in the states is already like version six of the show. So we are uh, continue uh, continue to develop it, uh, exchange tracks, exchange visuals, and 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 just uh, making it also interesting, more interesting for us over the period we play it. That's what we basically did for the last year and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now it's we really it's interesting phenomenon because we always uh, work out the show to get it right, and when it's really perfect. Then we have to change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once it's changed, it. Yeah. Well, it, it was quite a, a overwhelming and emotional experience when 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 I went, and certainly in San Francisco. And one thing I noticed when you read on social media, uh, people professing their their adoration and their thanks and their their just love for Kruder and Dorfmeister. And what I realized is my story is like thousands of others around the world where your music was uh, was an, a gateway drug. It, it opened the doors of perception for so many people around the world. And when you read the comments of people, you know, now we're, I'm in my mid forties and we're coming back to these experiences and the songs that soundtracked different parts of our lives uh, to hear them you know, in the flesh with the uh, Josh Asus's work, you know, encapsulating your careers visually, all the images and eras. It's it's a really a, a magnet. It's like a concert. It's bigger than a DJ said. It's a it's an experience. And and I was so blown away uh, by the intention and the sort of uh, emotional nature of the journey. And and you mentioned Peter about playing the different styles. You have so many styles. I mean, the the show I saw had the down tempo, had the drone bass, had house, you know, even got into some like out there jazz. How do you lay that out? Like, how do you uh, plot a journey that's between the beats per minute and the different geographies and generations? Um, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, how we do it? That's a that's of course uh, a secret. We can't <laughs> can't can't give that for. But we just realized that um, that I mean, our We've been DJing for 30 years, probably. Yeah. And we just found out that we bore ourselves with sets that have the same sort of style for two hours. Like you play a house set, or if you can play a funk set or a, a drum bass set. But after a while, it, it somehow it misses something. So we somehow said, okay, let's combine, it, combine these styles and bring them all together under one roof. In, as a like as a concert, as you said, as a in a concert format, mm -hmm. and ideally we do that with the DJ thing as well. But it needs, of course, some preparation. But at the same time, we want to keep it a bit open to to be still be able to improvise, because I mean, when we started the first twenty years, we played without any rehearsal. We just played fully impro improvised. There was mm -hmm. no talk about the set, yeah, so. This changed in the last years because we just found out we have more power if we are prepared. Mm. Yeah, and it's 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 you know the thing is to 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 make it flow like it does. It's it really needs a lot of preparation and a lot of also feeling the crowd and feeling the moment and all this and and this is why we continuously change things in the show and also edit them differently and uh, and then we see okay there's a 
this this is great, but there's a gap, then we lose people here, then we change it around again. So it's 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 a long, 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 long journey to get there. But now we have to kill you as we told you the secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or perhaps we're just too sensitive. I mean, perhaps if you say, okay, I'm I'm the great DJ and I just play whatever I want, I don't care about the style or the 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 the, the, the crossfades and and whatever. I just play and that's it. But I think we we our quality level or our level, craftsman level, if you mm. if you want to name it like that, um, is so high that that we always have to work to get on this level again that we used to have or that we still try to have. that uh there was a there was an element of improvisation uh at play only because when when the audio visual and you're working together and you're plotting out the show normally went with like a, a rock band all that stuff is timed and the pyro and the lights and everything so to be feeling the crowd and and to make a choice to make a left turn or to pull another track out that you maybe hadn't done uh, that kind of keeps it fresh and keeps it unique to that particular night, which I think is really important. You know, and I obviously you're conscientious of that because if you're on the sixth or seventh version of this particular show on this tour, then obviously it's it's a work in progress. And when I was listening back to the Belgium show from November, it was you know considerably different from the San Francisco show in September. There were there were similarities, but it was different. Thing is. We play we play the show with uh, Ableton, and so we have you know we have parts uh, we have stems we can play things differently, but also we can work it completely differently with the EQs and the effects. And so you can, if if you want, you can really push a song, or you can also take it down. You know, so there's a lot of uh, possibilities with if we do it like like we do it now with the it's 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 even. There's even much more, there's so much more possibilities than playing a normal teacher set with Ableton. So, so that's, and we, we really, uh, uh, we do this with Ableton now since a long time, really, uh, the, the live stuff. And, and so we have uh, literally banks of effects and, and, and tons of tricks we can do to the audio. Yeah, it's like an instrument. It around. It's yeah. really like an instrument. Because yeah. when we start, when I started with it, I was like, why well, was too loud the effect or the, yeah, the, the yeah. echo delay was too heavy and that wasn't necessary. And once once we had the earplugs, because we then really started to have the, the monitoring, the, the in ear thing monitor. that you hear exactly, that is, then you found out that just a little is enough. Mm. Yeah, but because if it's blown up, you hear every detail. Mm. So you had to learn to work 
this sort of uh, electronic piece of equipment as an instrument mm. and that you can only learn it by using it live yeah. because if you do it at home yeah. you say okay yeah uh, yeah I can play but it, then if you're live and you're nervous mm. and all the factors that come together when you play and or, or there's a mistake mm. which is like which puts you in a, in a situation where you might lose your confidence mm. all these things that are coming together live Play, play a big role. Mm. So the more sure about your instrument, the better you are. And, or the more you know what can happen. Mm. All the, I mean, we, I remember we played in New York once and there was a, a loose cable. So we lost the con connection to the computer and to the, inf the interface because it was trembling so heavily that mm. the whole, the cable just lost itself somehow and got out. And to deal with these situations, you have to be really have to have a lot of yeah. um, experience because yeah. otherwise you just freak out. Say, ah, yeah. What can we do? Help yeah. me! So you have to somehow be cool and and have, have and it. It has to be for the audience. It has to be like it's all cool. It's mm. all planned. Mm. Even if there's the biggest mistake. Yeah. But we had this also. We had on, on the last leg. We had two times our computer crashed. But for one night his computer crashed. So I continued to play. And the uh, the next night my computer crashed, and and it this is it this is it's and of course we don't want the audience to realize that uh, or witness that in any shape or form and uh, yeah so it's it's always exciting <laughs> and, and people don't care about technical yeah, problems yeah and nobody that, cares about this it. and they shouldn't so yeah that's that's totally yeah. the, the thing yeah. well people don't care but their understanding of the limitations of technology and i'm sure that y'all are up there and you can kind of mask it and and make it so that people don't really notice because you are familiar with the machinations of the equipment that you don't get freaked out you just kind of say okay this isn't working we're going to do this it probably helps to have two of you up there so if one of you is freaking out the other one can be kind of chill and I wanted to mm -hmm. ask, because you mentioned you have so much possibilities now with Ableton, technology, et cetera. And I think that, and I say this from my perspective, what I always love about Kruder and Dorfmeister music is you do more with less. You don't overdo everything. You know, it's 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 very subtle and 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 doesn't overpower. And I, I would think that the limitations of the primitive equipment in the early days, in the G-Stone days, when you just had a couple of items to work with, you, you had to do more with less. That's all you could. Now you have the whole arsenal. You got every synth, every patch, every plug-in, every drum sound, every at your fingertips on a on a little card, right? Do you find mm -hmm. that it harder to restrain yourself from from that doing more with less? Do you are you tempted to to use all the things, or is there a discipline to keep it in the aesthetic of of you know? not overpowering and not being just bombs and and volume and echoes yeah when we're, so, we're so slow you know <laughs> it takes us it takes us two years to learn a, a program so yeah, we stick with one yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's just it, it, um, what, what is really the biggest difference is uh the undo button you know and this is actually what we didn't have back in the day so so back in the days we had to record every every mix we did we recorded to that and we did always the dubs. When we did dubs, we did it always live. So it was a matter of there was an excitement when you when you uh, 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 recorded the track finally, and uh, and you had you did ten passes until you had one that was perfect from the start to finish. 
and uh, and this this energy is something that that is not easy to have when you do things uh, in the modern in the modern world now. Yeah, I think it, it comes from the from the original technology where you just had had the the, the multi track, and you had to perform mm. on on that five or six or ten takes because otherwise you couldn't do too many takes because otherwise you you would have to copy the tape to get the qual to to maintain the the quality because if you run it too often it would lose the magnetic parts of mm. the of the tape so you had to perform on time um, at the right time. And since we coming a little bit from that school, I mean, we started with the home home recording and some as a, as a revolution against the expensive studio and the producer mm -hmm. and all the people who want to tell you what to do. That's when we started. But we, when we grew up, we, we saw how it works in the old school way, which is um, a difficult way to do to record something. But but um, it was it that was a good school somehow to to to, to know to know. Um, yeah. To know, to be aware of that of the difficulties of the old way of recording, somehow. But it, but it is also that uh, what's what was interesting that when we when we started out, you know, we had a, you know, we had a we had a sampler and a small mixing desk. We didn't have any EQs uh, except for one on the mixing desk. We didn't have any compressors, nothing. So like on the on the K and D session, everything you hear, there's not even one compressor on this on the stuff. So. Uh, and back then we had, you know, we had a Fender Rhodes, for instance, and at a certain point, the Fender Rhodes was kind of boring, just the sound. So we started, okay, what can you do with the Rhodes? You put a space echo on it, you do this with it. And, and you know, things, you have one instrument and you try it in a million ways. And this makes also for yeah. a good sound and for, for, some, for a sound that is more yours than having this vast of uh, a vast uh, thing of plugins and, and uh, presets and whatever. So it's it's more. I, I remember basically. I remember everything when you, I listen to your old stuff. I remember everything how it's done. You know, I wouldn't remember everything of the new stuff how it's done because once I use plugins, that's a different world. But I we hardly use plugins. Uh, it's a different world. I mean, what, what you have to understand if you do music is after a while, you see, you have a, say you have a plugin, you have a, some Arturia Matrix, whatever, yeah? a great synthesizer in, in, a, in a VST format. And you have a sound, which is a great sound. And, and I think it's really important to understand that, that you don't take the sound as it is. And, and we always had, like we recorded a Rhodes, mm -hmm. but then it, it turned out to be something completely else. So... So to to mess around things or run it through effect effect pedals, resample it. It's like making a copy at a, at a copy, making a copy of a copy of a copy, mm -hmm. and suddenly something else else comes out of it. Mm -hmm. So this sort of approach was always important, I think. Oh, definitely. And and I've actually listened to you talk to another uh, journalist about that a little bit, how like the stakes are higher because of the tape and the limitations and you got to get the takes right. You don't have the undo button. And that sort of like raises the stakes or the energy to get a great take. 
uh, versus knowing you can do it as many times as you need for as long as you need and, and there's no pressure and maybe there's like a not the same energy. And and I, I love that that about the then and now. I found y'all, excuse me, when I was young and just, you know, finding lots of music and this was a whole new world to me. So I found it really interesting to sort of trace y'all's roots. Um, I'm sure you've told the origin story more times than you can count, but my listeners probably don't know. So I want to go back to Dr. Richard, PM to the K. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when y'all found each other, you know, as a matter of fact, if, and I may be mistaken, but it was a, it was maybe a broken sampler that that one of you sought the other's professional opinion, right? There was a guy in Vienna who, who was a, an A&R for a record company here, and he had the idea to do a sampler called Danube Dance. And he invited all the, the DJs and, and, and producer that he knew. And uh, and he asked me if I if I would like to produce two of, of some very big DJs back then in Vienna, Arno, Arno and Makossa. And they were really, really cool, great, great DJs and superheroes, actually. And I said, yeah, of course I do it. And uh, once I started the song, they came with tons of samples and another sample, another sample, another sample. At a certain point, my sample was full, but we didn't have half of the song. So uh, I think one of the guys said uh, that he knows uh, another guy who has a sampler and he can call him and maybe he comes by and, and borrows us his, his other sampler. And this other guy with the sample was Richard. And he came to the studio and um, he set up his sampler and explained it to me. And then I finished the song and that's how we basically met. Yeah, and then I said, uh, $500 an hour is a top business, really. Then I beat him up <laughs> <laughs> and threw him out. Kept the uh, I love that. <laughs> Take the whole equipment. Take the whole equipment. But, Get out of here. You didn't know at that time uh, that this was going to be a musical partnership, right? You were just working on the, the compilation. It's, it's this interesting thing was we didn't know that at all. And then we had another meeting at a friend's place, uh, Constantine where Richard played me his his contribution to the to this sampler and uh and the 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 very weird and uh, or sad thing or crazy thing at the <laughs> moment was he used the exact same sample as Massive Attack did for daydreaming no for safe from harm safe from harm and i had from from Helmut Lang, the designer, I had, a, I had a promo tape of the album before it came out. So we sat together and he played us his song. Very, with the Billy Copham sample. With the Billy Copham sample, very proudly. And I listened to it and I said, it's really great, but I have bad news for you. <laughs> Massive Attack just used that sample. So, yeah. And, and back, back then, if somebody used the sample, the sample was retired. You didn't, you didn't touch the sample. This was, this was, uh, uh, it was a, a code of yeah. honor, you know, it, 
he had to if somebody you never and so it was uh, it was rather sad but then richard went to london to study in london and we kept in contact and uh on a visit back back in vienna he played a flute on a track that i did and this was this is what became definition of the G-Stone DP. Then uh, at a certain point we we were in contact and Richard uh, thought that he's maybe thinking about going back coming back to Vienna and and I sent him this photo of, of Richard Abaddon with Simon and Garfunkel and said come back and let's do a, a record where we can put this our faces instead of where we copy that cover basically and and that's what he did. I I love that story. I love how you you lured him back with the Simon and Garfunkel because that was one of the first things when I was young and saw the the image. Of course, I likened it. I remember that from my parents' record collection, but I didn't know the story until well later. I, I also want to hear about uh, Pete, uh, Richard. You drove back. You you showed up in your Peugeot with all your stuff, right? And that was the dawn yeah. of mm -hmm. G-Stone, right? Yeah. Take me back yeah. to that that period it's like 92 93 sampling is still uh in its in its relative infancy as far as the art form when well, it was a, suddenly affordable you have to, we have to i mean relatively affordable yeah. it was still expensive for us but but when the sampling thing started already in the 80s but we couldn't we just yeah, jumped yeah. in around 91 or something yeah. like that and then Took took it from there, and but we didn't know what's what's going to happen. There was nobody's telling us, "Hey, guys, great, just continue." Everybody said, "Learn something serious," yeah. you know, and it was a complete venture to to continue with this music thing. Mm. Nobody, it was completely unsafe. So, but it, it was a movement. There was a record. Was there was there. a record uh, shop in Vienna called Black Market, which was sort of a meeting point. All people who were somehow interested in music, DJs, everybody was in in his shop. And once and somehow we, we were always able to to get all the you know the, the promos, the white labels at the time. It was very important to get this stuff early, limited style, mm -hmm. and. Um, and so there was some movement happening somewhere. There was the people involved like Rodney Hunter, Patrick Pulsinger, mm -hmm. people like friends who just were hanging out in clubs and uh, and then doing music the whole day in the in the studio, was living inside the the little apartment where the studio was. You know, it was all, actually we were living in the studio yeah. where and that's why the original bedroom rocker thing is coming from where we just did that all the time, yeah, yeah. basically. And then we went to a club. Uh, it was a bit unhealthy lifestyle, I have to say. 
but somehow we survived it. Yeah. <laughs> and then it and then suddenly we 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 got this connection. We brought out the G-Stone EP and we had an advertisement in the Straight No Chaser magazine, which did a little bit, and Charles Peterson did a little bit, uh, did some help, of mm-hmm. course. But the main breakthrough probably was then to do the remixes for mainly Giles and, mm-hmm. and the guy, the people from Ireland and from Mute Records. Mm-hmm. Because we were, the thing is, we never had a manager. We always did the connections ourselves. So we were actually phoning up people, introducing ourselves. I remember the old story when we went when London phoning up Ninja Tunes and say, hello, we're here. And we just walked to the office, the same with Wolf Sound. And but we always had the, you know, our business card was the the record we had, the G-Stone EP. So that worked, that helped. And then we did we started to do the remixes. And then the, the stone somehow was rolling, you know. And at the same time, we played literally in every village where there were two turntables, but literally in every village around in Europe. <laughs> and then we in 95, we came the first time to the US and, and we played also like in, I don't know if, how many shows in, in 10 days or something like this crazy in front of 20 people, 30 people. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but it was it was a movement. Yeah. It was a do-it-yourself yeah. movement. It was like a loud minority idea. Yeah, yeah. That you do it all yourself. That and uh you have this sort of jazz people in yeah. London, and you have these people uh, in every country yeah. there were some bunch of people and promoters who were somehow young people like us with like mid-20s. Yeah. Nowadays it's already old, but yeah. <laughs> mid-20s was was young. And and to do it yourself and 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 meeting people connecting with people and building from mm-hmm. there and that's what we did and we had you know it like like for instance our first tour was organized by the wonderful paul craven he did a magazine called on the one this was our first cover we were the first time on a cover which, which was incredible and basically we slept on his couch so, <laughs> so it was kind of like that we flew economy to the states uh slept on the couch and and stayed there for a couple of days and uh, drove to Seattle and everywhere with the car. It was a fun time. I remember it was freer. It was freer in America. When we Uh, were flying, it was just Uh, pre-9-11. There was, was, yeah. We we didn't have any, I think there was no visa. Yeah. And and there was no, actually there was no check. There was no real checking. It was easy. At the the airport. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, A different time for sure. Different different time that's uh and there's one great story i have to tell it again it's about the playboy magazines you know mm-hmm. so we went to went to san francisco mid 90s when it was when san francisco was still okay yeah you had all these secondhand stores record stores and in one store there was a basement where, where they had old sort of magazines and old 70s and 80s Playboy magazine. 60s, 70s, 70s, yeah. 80s, the good time of Playboy yeah. magazine. So we said, okay, all right. And it was one dollar each. Yeah. yeah. And, and they and had we, the most amazing covers and inside with fold-out pages and, and just just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then okay, we Peter bought a bunch, I bought a bunch, and we put them in, into some boxes and we were sending them over to Austria. Then we get to the come to the post office send them over. It was a pretty two big boxes. And you know what? It took ages to arrive in in Austria because it was somehow at the customs. And we said, why are they? 
why does it take so long to arrive at home? And then we found out that probably everybody who was working at the castle was going they through, kept, <laughs> through the paper. The magazines for months <laughs> or even longer. And then once they were finished, they sent them. <laughs> yeah. But we did, you know, this was the sport back then. Uh, every town we went, we went to the record stores, we bought, we went to the second-hand stores, we bought all the old records, we went to the new stores, we bought all the, because this was, this was the incredible thing back then. Every record store had something special, you know, uh, featured a different kind of label, different kind of artist. So you went in there and, and everybody knew us somehow and, and it, it always gave us the best stuff. So this, this was why our record boxes back then were pure gold. It was Everything we had in there was collected from around the world. So we were so far ahead of everybody. It was, this is not, not existing anymore, this yeah, kind and, of and, and, thing. And but it was, thing, this was great back then. That was fantastic. And there was no internet to search for anything. It was really up to you how, how much you, 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 know, you knew about records or how much you read liner notes or artists. And in books, we didn't have really books about it all thing, perhaps a bit, but not really. So all we knew were, was probably from the from the record covers, you know, which studio, all the, the, the great jazz, funk musicians. And and this, this knowledge was somehow gold. Because remember when from 1979 on, the whole sort of great funk and jazz and groove movement went downhill with the new wave, mm. punk new wave and the whole 80s. All these musicians, they were broke. Yeah, they, some of them got rediscovered in the nineties, but it stopped. You can see it like the last probably year was probably nineteen eighty, mm. and then you don't find this sort of vibe of these records anymore, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. But at the time, it, it it was still somehow at some sometimes a bargain. So because there was no information, so you had you had to know, and then you could could find some records and we knew some people who were even much better with information so we had we had a little we were working on it but there are some other people who really there's this famous story about Rainer Trübe you know Rainer Trübe the DJ from from Germany and we went at the time we went to Brazil I think it was our first time in Brazil and he was famous for he's a he's a, he's a big sort of collector guy well respected in this collection, collector circle, you know, Charles Peterson, mm -hmm. Nicola Conte, and all these people. And and we went to Brazil and 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 he said, Yeah, let's go there, there. And yeah, we, we, we walked, we walked on the street and there was a shopping mall. And he he walked and he looked at us and he said, I think we have to go inside there. I feel that there's a record store in there. <laughs> and we literally we walked inside and at the end, at the very end of the whole mall, there was a tiny little record store. And they had only CDs on top, but under the CDs, they had crates of records. And we found amazing records yeah. there. Yeah, yeah Rainer has a sixth sense for records. Yeah. So we, yeah. we took it really seriously, yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> And it was about samples as well, you know, about finding good mm. stuff that nobody had or good beats. And, um, yeah. and, and we're still looking for beats, you yeah. know, 
and beats, but beats which are off the wall. That, right. that um, at the time there were some beats records. I remember things like Ultimate Break, Breaks and Beats. Break, yeah. there, there were there were a lot of beats records, but mostly with stuff that everybody knew anyway. So yeah, yeah. you hear it with all the, the 90s hip hop. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. This, uh, this yeah. sounds. Yeah. yeah, when when Breakbeat Lou put out that Ultimate Beats and Breaks, it was controversial yeah. because the old school people felt like y'all had to find mm. the breaks, and then to put all the the breaks on one record. You know, not everybody appreciated yep. that yep. in the in the culture here. So I wanted to ask because in my to my I think of Vienna, especially like back then, is like techno from Berlin or like maybe like hardcore from Amsterdam, right? And and y'all are talking about you know beat digging vinyl records. You're talking about the jazz, funk, soul, blue note, verve. You know, Creed Taylor, Rudy Van Gelder, like really deep. Where does that come from? How do y'all? Because you were in a hip hop band, right, Peter? So you you were you were plugged into hip hop, and and you already mentioned you played flute. You're a multi instrumentalist. Where does that inspiration or the the what what puts the battery in your back to yeah. go digging yeah. for beats to become vinyl aficionados? Where what's the the influence or inspiration for that? Originally, it was just finding good good tracks. It wasn't about the sampling. Mm. It was about like having super rare. Whatever, Eddie Harris. Right you know, mm -hmm. stuff that people didn't find. They were rare, you know, or undisputed truths. So if I sing broken and blue. I don't know, all this stuff, Norman Whitfield. Whatever, all the CTI, some of the CTIs were hard to get. Not talking about ECM because we didn't really were looking for that, but there's so there were so many uh, stuff that that was hard to get. Uh, so it was about information and it was about the tracks, the cool mm. grooves, mm. things, yeah, whatever. Jimmy Custer Bunch or you know good yeah. stuff Billy Copham all the George Duke whatever yeah you name it it's, it's big world Herbie Hancock whatever And to find the right tunes, this it was this was like a school here. Mm. But a, it, like, like originally for for like for me, my mom was already a record collector. So my mom has tons of music, and she loves Brazilian music and all, all this. So I kind of grew up with that kind of music. And when I started sampling, I my record collection was basically too new for sampling. You know, my record collection started in the say. With rock in the 70s, you know, so I bought Queen and that, that stuff when I was little, you know, and then she had she had more like some interesting stuff that wasn't on my plate back then. And in the early sample days, you know, everybody sampled funk, James Brown and all this. But this got boring pretty quickly because all those breaks where you, you heard them everywhere. And then 
we started to look at jazz and jazz was more interesting just but for actually from the flavors the, the way the, the people played and what kind of stuff they played and also even much better timing because jazz people are super straight and it's for sampling and looping this was heaven because funk is like psh, funk starts with 110 ppm and ends with 120 at the end you know some of it mm. but uh, the jazz people are like straight straight this is and it was this was really for me it was a total revelation mm. when i found out oh, wow this they play like super straight and i can loop i can loop a bar here i can loop a bar there and it, it's it's i don't you know them because normally they didn't have a time stretching function in the early samples so we had to pitch it and once you had to pitch it to make a loop yeah, yeah there was there was this interesting phenomenon wow. because with this looping and, and adjusting the thing because there was a sort of headroom of of stretching so if if you if you would try to adjust two samples you could probably pitch two or three beats as three parts sense, uh, sense three four up and down yeah. and the other one as well but if that wouldn't match then it was a sign to uh, 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 to get something to try something else you know but now you can pitch everything yeah, together yeah. and what i wanted to say is that it, with the sample it, it from a certain point on it got further because we found out that that you get good sounds especially on soundtrack records mm. because it was always important to get the the instruments without beats as well that, because if there are beats on or voices on mm. you can't really work with that so you had to have stems and the only official way to get stems was um to find them on records and, and it was easy to find them on soundtrack mm. stuff yeah but then again you could you would find them on easy listening music or on, on country or wherever yeah 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 so we were ruthless where we found our samples we were really we looked everywhere yeah. I, you know for me every, every, also like we we did a lot of digging at our friends places you know yeah. we had a dot recorder small dot the dat machine and we walked there and we spent nights at friends places going through the whole collection and but i did this everywhere you know i did this at collectors but i did it also at totally normal people who had kind of shitty records but still there's there was something everywhere and this is kind of like also it makes made our stuff maybe a little bit more special in a way that we dig in places where nobody else was digging so yeah and it was a bit a lot of work i remember yeah, I, I did it for a couple of times in a record store because i knew the guy there an american guy and he had it for a certain limited amount of time he had a store in Vienna with really super obscure stuff so I went there and he said okay you can record I brought my little dot player dot recorder and put it on the amp with the record player but then he had to he had this pile of records and you have to put them out you have to go through yeah, them yeah. you have to put them back again yeah and you have to be quick because otherwise it takes mm. weeks you have to be quick and to see ah there might be something at the beginning or uh there is something might be an ambient part and check check record next yeah. and and if you at these sessions you were we probably were scanning 500 records yeah. at once yeah but the, the cool thing back then was also with the records that you saw the thing you saw so you, you we at a certain point you had a, a a total eye okay there's a break there's the breakdown there could be a beat so it it was like skipping through the records like you knew exactly aha uh -huh, the way the one the the the, the, the grooves looked aha uh -huh, there might be a break Wow, you could actually look at the vinyl and the cuts and notice a yeah. drum break. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 
And you know, yeah, you just just but it's it's if you look at the records where there's a drum break, you always see this. It's always a, a little bit looks a little bit a little bit lighter. Just the, the the way the grooves go, it looks a little bit lighter. And then when when the whole arrangement is there again, it's 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 darker. Yeah, that's and, what it is. And then it was of course about album covers. You know, mm. normally in shops, it doesn't matter the music. If there's if the graphic is is good or mm. remarkable, it normally gets sold. Yeah, the, the the better the the, mm. the outfit, the, the more Very true. It, the more somehow it, it's worth something, you know. And going all through these records, we 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 were able to to acknowledge this um, the the value of a good record cover. What makes it what makes a good record cover? If you see thousands of record covers, then you somehow develop a certain feeling for covers that, that had a, a mm. big input, yeah. input on ourselves yeah. besides the music you know the fo photos graphics the way it's done how is it done uh what format does it have yeah. all these little things we we love that we still mm. love that so it's great that the vinyls have been coming back for the last years yeah. which is great for, for us because we, we still are completely into this i remember we said Stop! Kill the the CD. We were like save yeah, the vinyl. Yeah, save we the were vinyl. save the vinyl yeah. movement. So we avoided to buy a CD for quite a long time. Right. But right. then you had to. It's the same like you have to have yeah. a mobile phone. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. It seems like vinyl has yeah. has overtaken CDs now in in a commercial and uh, in terms of metrics of units <laughs> units sold, which you know, would have never believe that years ago. Yeah. And also interesting that y'all traveled to Brazil. I always hear about Brazil. You know, I hear Giles Peterson, uh, uh, Jay Dilla at the end of his life when he was very sick, went there record shopping. Madlib talks about it often. Seems like Brazil is is like a hub. Diggers and, and sample fiends like yourselves. And I always just find it interesting that it, it's always referenced. And same with the covers. I've, I can't count how many DJs have told me that they've just bought a record off the cover image. They just feel it, know it, and, and inevitably they'll find some gold in there. I wanted to, you know, because I, I know that y'all were really only working with like uh, a, a small Akai sampler and like a MIDI controller and like an Atari computer, right? That was like the original mm -hmm. cha chain of, yeah. of command, if you will. And uh, at what point in time do you start like evolving your your rig? Like, is it after G-Stoned, like for DJ Kicks, or was that your rig all the way through? the sessions it was once we had a little bit more money which was just put a fort and we just piled up yeah. because to stack it up because then we had an, a second sampler and then we had a third sampler mm -hmm. to have more sampling time yeah. and that was the key because we still didn't move we didn't have a, a multi-track so we yeah. were simulating the multi-track thing with the samplers and we bought mm -hmm. uh we both bought a, a mechie desk in i think 95 or something like that and this we kept this until 2000 and then we bought a different uh, yeah mixer. And, and i think we went yeah. we were lucky to go to japan mm -hmm. midnight because the ufo guy yeah. he invited us the guys invited us yeah. to japan and we were like wow japan and we went to equipment store and we bought two two archives we bought the rks 1000 yeah there no it was, was it? the 1100 the 1100 uh, and there yeah. was a big what was it yeah. No, the three thousand two hundred. The three three thousand two hundred. We had already the nine hundred, eleven hundred, and the thousand. Yeah. It was a great machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we bought. And the, then we bought the three thousand two hundred, yeah, yeah. and that was uh, another level. Another level. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it was it was it was rather cheap in in Japan to buy it in Japan, and we had a somehow we had a connection here shipped with a over, shipping yeah. company, and they shipped it over, and it was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's incredible, incredible how how much it we did on that machine. Yeah, yeah. we really used wow. these machines. Wow, wow. We really used the machines. Wow. <laughs> it's 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 just for 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 somebody who doesn't know. Back then, you had to so that you found the sample on the record. So you had to record the the sample into the archive. Then you had to put it into a keyboard onto a keyboard so that you can play with it. From the keyboard, you had to put it into the computer. Then you, there you could loop it, and then you had, you could tune it. So this was a, a to do these steps alone took you ten minutes, fifteen minutes. So for us to make a beat. It was at least a day, but I mean a beat. Just I really mean the beat, not the whole thing. I just mean literally the rhythm track. It took a whole day, and so you had to be very, you had to choose very wisely what you use because you were just otherwise you were just wasting your time. So this you, you got a really good ear at a certain point for this sample will work. This will be worth the effort to put it in to tune it to all of this. So in the beginning, I, I, you know, there was tons of like uh, roads going nowhere, <laughs> literally nowhere. It's very punk rock. The, the, it's like the DIY. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah but, I mean, there was nobody was we did. There was no, there was no school. But it, nobody it, was explaining to us how yeah. to produce a record. Yeah, we, we just somehow we thought we know how it works. Yeah, we just we said to us to ourselves we said we know how to do it, but we didn't really know which is. Did it. <laughs> but it, it, that, it that's a, a part. Of, that's a very important thing that you what you just said. It, it was all, all DIY, and this was the the only thing that we kind of took from the whole techno movement that was here, because that was also very hands on, do it yourself, everybody. So that was the only thing that we kind of got as as an inspiration, uh, and then we we thought because we we. We shopped actually. We 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 did. We made a tape of the Cheesestone EP and we shopped it to a couple of people, and literally nobody wanted us. <laughs> and then we said, "Okay, and, and everybody's doing it themselves. Let, let's let's uh, uh, let's put up the money and do it ourselves." And this is yeah. yeah. What, they, what... they said you have to change your name because yeah. they said Dorfman, It sounds like a, a transport or a transport company or something yeah. like that. So. But we, we somehow we said okay now we do it the way we we thought yeah. it's right with the cover. Then we went to the record plant because there was no mastering. We just went there to, for the cut, and nobody was understanding us really. And they thought they always. I mean, we we got the feeling that the people think what are these guys doing it's going nowhere anyway. Mm. But but somehow we believed it, and and then it was building up. And after the after the DJ kicks thing when we went to Berlin and, and met well actually it was different it was different we were, yeah. we were playing in, in Brussels DJ style and there was suddenly and it was relatively successful already all self-organized no management nothing and then in in we played in Brussels and there was one guy of the K7 people at the time was coming backstage completely drunk he was and some of blah, 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 blah. But somehow the connection kept on and, and that was leading to the DJ Kicks release.
and the DJ Kicks release was leading then with K7 to the KD Sessions release because Peter said, okay, we have to all these great records from Ireland and, and from 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 Giles with this nice cover with the remixes that I mean they did probably 500 pieces or printed perhaps a thousand, not more. Very limited for DJs, just for promotion somehow. And we have to and then it was lost. Nobody, it was just forgotten. And so we said we said, okay, we have to put that together as an album to to keep it alive somehow. And that's why we did the, the KD sessions. And and from then on, you know, it, it was just wild. It was the first years were ultra wild, and it's still people are still aware of this record. They're still somehow they know, ah, these guys from Vienna, ah, yeah, they, they have a certain style. This is cool. Somehow it's not commercially sold out, really. It's still somehow underneath, but it's somehow a quality idea that they still keep. That's what we're still on somehow at this taking a profit from that time somehow. Mm -hmm. First of all, thank you for tracing the line from from DJ Kicks through the K and D sessions and onward, because I think that that is you know I I got I worked backwards. I I was in college at twenty years old, got the K and D sessions, then got DJ Kicks, then got G Stoned. So you know it worked in reverse. Um, mm -hmm. That said, uh, I really was wanted to ask because I've read this story where uh, after the you know you, you're very successful with DJ Kicks and there was a journalist. That kind of pissed you off that i said what's the big deal and that was kind of what sent you back to say oh yeah. you want to you want to see what the and from that comes yeah. k and d sessions yeah. which we can acknowledge yeah. is a landmark piece of art we played a we played a show in munich at the Mufat hall where we just played now as, as well in the uh, as, as as part of the 30 year anniversary and we played there and it was it was jam-packed with a million people outside that couldn't get in and uh after the show after we played a, a young student slash journalist came to us and he really very, um, very, uh, he, he just said like, what the hell, what is wrong? Why, what did you do that to deserve all those people more or less? Yes. Kind of like that. So, <laughs> and he was right. And, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And, and no, the thing, the thing was that we played, that's, that's what I said in the beginning, we played literally, in every village where there were turntables. So we played in Munich, we played around there, everywhere. We, mm. I, I think at least 50 times in, before we did this show. So we had a, we built an audience over the years. But this, you know, the, uh, just the way that guy asked us, this upset me so much <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that on the way back, we drove back in, Richard had a car and we drove back to Vienna and I said to him, we need to do this. We need to put everything together so that people can, like people like assholes like that, uh, can realize what we did. We worked. We worked twenty four seven. We did it all the time. We made music all the time. So it was kind of like somebody's telling you, you, you. I mean, we won this in the lottery or whatever, you know. So I, I was, I was really upset. And then we we came back and then we talked to K seven about the idea and they said, oh wow, sounds like a great idea. And then we we started working on it and. And it was this was also a pretty long session until we had this all together. But yeah, yeah. and and eventually we we didn't think that we didn't we didn't uh, expect that this was uh, selling uh, a million times or whatever. We we were happy with we were ha would have been happy with uh, a normal sales like the the DJ kicks was back then. I don't know, 
30 or 50,000 records. Nobody was expecting nobody was this expecting thing. No, 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 nobody no. was expecting no. this this whole movement. No. And then except for my mom, she always did that quite a great But the media, the media jumped on it big time in all in, in Germany. So there was all the big news magazines really blew it up big mm. time in Germany. And from there jumped over to England and to Austria as well, and then to Italy and to all the other uh, countries in Europe. And in America, we were, we did stuff already anyway, because we're always somehow connected to, to America since we've been there first, mid-90s. And then we did Australia. But I just, what I wanted to say is you still have to work the countries. You have mm. to work your audience. You can't rely on anything. You have to go to this country, play again, perhaps smaller audience, and then build it up again. Mm. There's nobody's waiting for you. You, you really have to, in some countries, it's easier. You get a superstar feeling. But then if you go somewhere else, you still have to work. Yeah. And we're still lucky because we don't uh, are reduced to our language. Because if you're a German singing band, mm. which we have here, very good, very successful here, they're just limited to Switzerland, Austria, and Germany. Mm. And that's it. Okay. They have no, nobody's interested in them in America, in England, or in Holland. They can't play nowhere. So good as they are, but they, they have they're limited. They have some borders. Yeah. So that was luck. That was lucky for us. I think that yep. also your music like translates in a way that's accessible uh, across different genres. And maybe that young person I noticed with like uh, with electronic music, it's it's even now it's still just evolving at a much more rapid pace than other genres. So if you made fans in a country and then you didn't play there for a few years, things change a lot in, in dance music more than, than yeah. other genres yeah. so it's easy to well, get easy. left behind yeah. and and so I, I understand that needing to build but one thing i found interesting was you said it, it didn't even though it sold a lot richard you said it didn't get like commercially played out it could have i mean I, you, you all know there was a time where you couldn't go to any like shishi bar at, a, at in a hotel or at coffee shops and uh, you know high-end shopping and and your music would come on and this is just a few years after they wouldn't yeah. press your first record but instead of leaning into it, like a lot of artists would embrace the stardom and, and say yes to everything, you didn't. I mean, you famously turned down David Bowie. You stopped putting out original records for many years. Um, tell me about that decision, about, about stepping away from the wave and immersing yourself in other projects uh, before you came back to 1995. It was a, there was a point where... where, where where the the whole experience was feeling uncomfortable to be honest uh, the whole fame and 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 people uh go crazy and 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 sit around you and stare at you and all this and uh we were coming from somewhere else actually <laughs> and and somehow it didn't feel uh, it didn't feel like this is this is the way to go forward for us 
So our our decision was to concentrate on 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 something that is actually like our beginning again. So Richard did Tosca, I did Peace Orchestra, and we started afresh with the big KD thing bubbling on the side. And this was actually um, probably is one of the reasons why we're still together. <laughs> Because if we would have continued back then in this kind of way, uh, where everybody wants a piece of you, uh, we I think we would have have we would have not survived. I think as 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 a as a as a duo, and uh, I think this this break was uh, essential to this to us for us uh, reaching 30 years of being together now. And it was for us, it was, a, I mean, a lot of people cannot comprehend that that you say no to fame, but uh, for us, it was a necessary choice. I think that that's, you know, probably the exception, not the rule. And it does make your your journey and your career unique in that regard. Um, I can remember when I first came to, I'm from Philadelphia, but uh, I, I visited the Bay Area in mm -hmm. 2002 for the first time by myself. And my very first night out in town Y'all played a place called the Galleria, really fancy multi-floor club. Oh, yeah. And I was young, <laughs> uh, uh, 23, hadn't been to a lot of nightclubs. I was more like of a hippie guy, you know, at the time, you know, and, and into psychedelic music and and had found Candy in college, but I was not plugged in to the scene. I knew Thievery, I knew Y'all, and I knew basically anybody that had the, mm -hmm. the DJ kicks. And of course, I loved LTJ Bookham, Massive Attack. What I'm saying is I did not know a whole lot. And I walked into that club that night by myself mm -hmm. and had like a, a religious, spiritual experience. And, you know, not drugs or anything, just music and humans and energy and dancing in a new city. It was post 9-11 and post uh, tech boom here in San Francisco, but it's not it's not like it is now. It was still a very beautiful, vibrant, uh, colorful place to be. And that was like a, a really life affirming experience. I already loved y'all music wise but to experience it live uh was like a revelation So that the whole 2000 from 2000 till till 2010, we we DJed uh, together sometimes, but not that often actually. We DJed more alone because I I was I was I w I discovered techno for myself at the, in the late 90s 98 98 99. So after drum and bass, I the, the energy I, I needed. I, I wanted to find some music that has, has a similar energy, 
but wasn't drum and bass anymore. And so that was kind of like techno. I discovered I discovered underground resistance and all those great techno stuff that I didn't hear in the early 90s in, in, in here in Vienna. Even though people played it, I didn't hear it. Anyway, so I was walking in this direction. Richie was also doing house, but more in a in in a in a groovy kind of direction. So, you know, we separated there somehow it's style-wise. But when we played together, we played, we, we didn't play like we do now. Since since a couple of years, we the, the both of us were playing back then we played an hour each. So I played an hour, he played an hour. So and we did this the whole 2000 to 2010 and then we we started doing the first our first live shows with visuals so we had always visuals with us uh, already in the early 90s but uh, back then in 2010 we did a real show where we really planned everything the whole where we planned the whole set the whole visuals to go together and this this is how we kind of started really playing together again and and really doing concerts together and teacher shows and all this and and uh, and yeah and that's that's what we do until now yeah and, and then we and somehow we found out I mean it sounds a bit com, in a in a bit a way com, in a, uh, somewhat commercial but but we just found out that people they don't want uh, you alone they want, they wanted me but they didn't want him they didn't want me so I said <laughs> let's do it. let's do it together again <laughs> please Peter, please come back please come please back. I no it's it's true it's really true if yeah. it, nobody needs um a guy uh, some nobody needs they, they want to have the whole thing yeah no, you know, they want to have the same. whole package and and um, I mean nobody cares about a Mick Jagger solo record that's how it is and uh, and Roger Waters also had a difficulty <laughs> <laughs> difficulties <laughs> over the years so no with that but that's 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 definitely a point but you know the thing is uh, as 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 a, as somebody who makes music and and uh, you want to reach an audience and uh as as much audience as as possible you know uh, we want to make uh, uh, it's nicer to make two thousand people happy than 30 people so and then then there was one very important step was to to realize that we wanted to have a, a sort of a club feeling as a concert earlier mm -hmm. like starting at 9 ending yeah. at 11 30. yeah because of course because of the people are getting our audience get, is getting older we're getting older and stuff and that all makes sense not to get to bed too late Mm -hmm. But then somehow, as well for us, interesting to have because you have more focus and more concentration to listen to the music at that time, other other than at two o'clock at night, stoned yeah. and drunk. You know what I mean? So, so we started with that, and that's already the last how many years? I don't know. Yeah, this concept we yeah. still do, and it makes so much sense. You know, everybody loves yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. The first time I saw it, I think was uh this current iteration would be 2018 at the midway in san francisco um or 2019 it was mm -hmm. before the pandemic mm -hmm. and then there was one that you had scheduled i think that had to be canceled because of the pandemic here in the states yeah, and then of course this past summer i have two more questions if you have time do we two more okay we, we just have to go to a dinner uh, because our reservation is now but we have, shoot okay i'll try to make them brief it's 
I wanted to just touch on the process of discovering 1995 um, and, and deciding to put it out as it was, you know, the dat tapes and trying to replay it and eventually just releasing music. I, I know you made a test pressing and then it sort of disappeared for 25 years. You know, we made a, we made a, a test pressing in about 95 of a couple of tracks actually to play them out more than to have an album really but it was also like looking how it would sound as 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 a whole and uh we'd use that for for DJing back then but then forgot it forgot about it and then at at one of our sessions where we prepared the show in 2017 or 18 uh or around that time or maybe a little bit later we just uh, i looked up in 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 here up there there's 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 a lot of our own releases and 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 the special bits and I, I, we found the the white label and then we had a listen and then when we listened we thought this sounds really good at the moment this feels really right and um uh, and from there came the the idea to to maybe uh, get it together and and put it together and look at the at at the dads for uh, for other bits and pieces that would also be possible and then the whole process of maybe redoing it started but that was a that was a, uh, Richard only started for a, a short period and then we gave up because it would have made something completely different out of it which was not actually the idea. And then we started restoring it, and and I I literally said quite a long time taking bits and pieces from different versions of the dads because they are all breaking up now. It's it's as a, at a certain age they use lose the magnetic uh, parts parts, and uh, you have dropouts, and and the dropouts on a dad tape is are terrible. It's, it's like really uh, it's it's not a nice it's not a nice sound. And then once we had this kind of together, somehow we sent it to Bernie Grundman to have it mastered by the amazing, by him, by this amazing genius. And then we released it in in this perfect period where everybody was at home. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and it, it makes yeah. it made sense well, because if we did so it, if, if we made it when we started, we had the G Stone DP, as you know, and it was based. I mean, musically, of course, we had these tracks, but the idea was a joke. You know, it was the thing with the Simon Garfunkel remake. Hey, you look like Paul Simon. I know this photo guy. But let's let's redo this photo. But it was a joke. It was like funny to to do it. It was like ha ha, yeah, somehow whatever. It was it, it was it was based on that idea. Somehow ironic, uh, ironic approach. And it was the same with the 1995 because he said, "Aha, uh -huh, I took you now how many years <laughs> to bring it out again? I mean, like 25 years or something." And that made sense again because it somehow 
Who, who brings out an album which is 20, over 20 uh, years old? A, 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 really, a really interesting and, and, and side note was we, we had in the, in the early 90s, it was 94, maybe around 95 even, we had a lot of talk with Charles Peterson because he wanted to sign us for his Talking Loud label. And then the question was always, so when are you going to release your first record? And I jokingly, jokingly said, uh, it's not going to come out before 2017. And which was a long time ago. Which was in the, in the, <laughs> the mid-90s, it was a long time away. And we didn't even make that. <laughs> so uh, That is funny. Well, I, I want to say that that was very sacred. Uh, that record at that time, a you know, very confusing, scary time around yeah. the world. It was perfect for that record because we were home, yeah. but it was also terrifying time. Who knew what yeah. was coming, right? And and we didn't know. So to get a a, a new record from Kruderendorf Meister, period, was enough. But for it to be an authentic, like archaeological piece of the embryo yeah. of the of the of the partnership is so sacred to put it on it's like you can time travel back mm -hmm. to the those times the world and, was and... all good uh, uh still yeah but the world was still perfect it, it yes. was also for us it was I, i think that's that was probably also the reason why why when we listened to it it felt so right you know because it reminded us as well of a time that that was where everything was good where everything was still okay you know And 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 that was probably a thing. Uh, this feeling was the initiation, uh, the, the initial spark to uh, to to put out that thing. Yeah. Well, we appreciated yeah. it, and it also made a lot of new fans. Besides your old fans that are 40, yeah, 50, yeah. you know, there's a younger generation that plugged into Kruder and Dorfmeister because of that release, mm. and then they work backwards, you know. So I've. I've enjoyed watching you make new fans. Okay, well, last question, which shouldn't be a short question, but it's going to have to be, which is Burning Man. I've been to Burning Man numerous times, my wife as well. Uh, we were not going this year. Oh. We were not going to go. Mm. And then I saw that y'all were going. And that's kind of like bad burner etiquette to like go for a musician mm. or go for a concert. Mm. You go for the experience. It's I'm going to own that. Yeah, I know better. Yeah. However, you know, we live in the Bay. It's four hours away. There was no way that y'all were going to come all the way from Vienna to play Burning Man. And then I was not going to be there. <laughs> So we actually left in the middle of the week and got there. And the first thing we did was was your night set, was the Thursday night set. Oh, yeah. 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 Great. Wow. There was. So I just wanted to ask, because I met your agent, Steve, by accident. You know, he was frantic <laughs> the, after the rain, stomping around the mud. He stopped to ask us a question, and we ended up talking. And I found out that he was your agent. So it's just kind of a small world. And, and obviously, everybody knows. They read the news reports all the crazy uh, experiences. I just, as, as much as or as little as you want to share, uh, why did you come to Burning Man this year? Like why after all these years? 
And uh, any reflections you care to share about the, that crazy experience? Yeah, man. We had, we had, you know, we had, we, we got offered Burning Man already like in the 90s. So it, it was always around for us somehow. It was always like, uh, it was always there. As in the 90s, not at late 90s, say, when, when it really first started, I, I remember Adam Freeman coming to us at, at a show and he said, oh, I've been to Burning Man. You have to do this. This is the best thing ever. So this was always around. And, and somehow, we had this this opportunity to that really went along. We we actually planned our tour at that time anyway. So it was it was kind of like uh, it was it was really happening just very naturally. Hey, you could come a couple of days before to Burning Man, which would be great. And we always kind of wanted to experience it. And and uh, and the thing is, uh, for my I have to say for myself, uh, I was. Uh, I was a little bit scared before I went there because I I didn't know if I if I if I can deal with the whole situation millions of people in a tent or in an RV and 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 you know having uh, to share a shower and all this you know but once I was there it felt amazing it felt really amazing and the the first night we played was probably one of the best gigs we ever had this 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 first the, the first one uh, on the on the Soul Sonic stage was just just from the sheer energy that was there from the people you know we started there was two hundred people ten minutes later there were two thousand people or even more I don't know and then you had all we saw all the art cars in the back coming and they all made movements they danced to our set it was it was I, I get goosebumps think, talking about yeah. it. And in just in regards to the rain, which was coming later, we were so lucky yeah. to, to play on yeah. that day. Yeah. Was pure luck. Yeah. And, and yeah. then and then we fight. I remember we were fighting to play outside the booth because first they wanted to put us in this booth because of the equipment. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the equipment with the sand, you know, yeah. that it doesn't get damaged. And we said, nah, hey, we have... And then we had... Pre this all these uh, um, sort of outfits prepared, especially yeah. for the Burning Man. So we wanted to to show them yeah, as well. We were looking looking really good, so we, we wanted <laughs> so, people to see us as so, well. And then at the end, is, they really uh, put us outside, yeah. and that was just the perfect day. And it was then probably, well, it was then the, the day before the rain came. Yeah, it was the rain. And then yeah. we played the morning as well, the the, the, the sunset district. at district. And then and, the rain came. And then we came home. And we, we drove home. We were the, the, for us the crazy thing was we were totally jet lagged, you know. So so uh we, we, we came because we came almost directly from Vienna to Burning Man. So uh, we still were on Viennese time, so it was this was uh, completely messing with us anyway. And then we we after the district set, we were totally tired but super happy, and we went home into the RV. Uh, yeah, took a nap and then we woke up to the mud. <laughs> and then all of a sudden everything was like, wow, okay. 
Tens of thousands of people are being told to shelter in place at the popular Burning Man Festival because they are literally stuck in the mud. They're trapped after a rare heavy rain inundated campsites in Nevada's Black Rock Desert. Thick ankle deep mud is making it impossible to walk or drive and more rain is now likely this afternoon. Uh, everything changes and, and for us, it was kind of cool. There was a moment on Saturday where they said to us, you probably cannot leave before Thursday. And our tour started on Thursday in Los Angeles. And we were trying, you know, um, we, we, we were trying to get in touch with the, with our, our travel agency to get us flights to get to, to go from Reno to, to, uh, Los really? Angeles again. And everything was booked. Everything was gone. So we, we didn't know how to, this was, there was a moment there, but then on Sunday, everything cleared up. we we found flights and, and, and then on Monday, everything we could leave. And for me also the experience was when, when, when the shit hit the fan, the people were amazing. The people were, the community was great really everybody was caring taking care of each other you, you need some water you need this you need food you need shelter you need any anything every, people were helping each other it was this was this made it even better you know the thing was i i think that's what i'm i'm telling people now when i talk about it for me the rain made it even better you know it, it would have been a great experience but to have this kind of experience under those circumstances where people are even even better and nicer and everybody grows to to the occasion it was it was a beautiful experience it was really really great and i'm, I'm super happy that i we're both super happy that we did it and and the set there was just unfortunately it's not recorded yeah and but i didn't i didn't yeah. even know that that the burning man has this me is, is such a meaningful thing to do mm -hmm. i just didn't know yeah we just I mean, yeah. I just stum stumbled yeah. in, really. Right. I, did, I didn't, I didn't know. And then when they when we arrived, it, there was a, a thing said, "This is not a festival. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a typical music festival." Yeah. And and slowly, I understood what they mean that it's more yeah. like a, a state of mind. Mm -hmm. The whole thing. There's something. It's it's a it's a special thing that yeah. you have to understand. And and I'm happy that I that I've been that I was there that I've been there because. Now I know what they're talking about, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's yeah, definitely. definitely. And that it, but it has that it has such a big importance in America. I didn't, I was mm. not aware of because ev to everybody we we said, okay, oh, we played the Burning Man. They were like, whoa, Burning, yeah, Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. And then with the experience afterwards, it was even crazier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful that you came because we went because y'all were playing. And other than my first year, the rain year was the most rewarding for all the reasons you said. I had grown a little jaded by it after so many years and the too cool for school and the Instagram photos. It's a lot, right? And But this year, it was like the rain was the great equalizer. Also, the thing, they, they, you just said it. Uh, 
we before the years before we experienced Burning Man through Instagram and through the socials and people posing and 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 you know and all this, but and and this this puts it puts it in a, in a different light actually that it really is. And once we were there, yeah, I think I think that's why they don't book us anymore because we we brought the rain, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but but that's what I, to finish it. That's what when once I was there. I realized it's there's there's a few people doing that, of course, but in general, the people have a different idea about it and 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 act accordingly. And 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 I mean, we spoke to to some of the guys who make those art cars. I mean, they work the whole year to put this on. I mean, the the, the effort that goes into the whole festival, actually, uh, the whole experience festival is the wrong word. The whole experience is uh, is amazing. It's just mind blowing. And I, we would definitely do it again if 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 it if it's if the stars align right, we definitely would do it again. I think we have to leave. Yeah, now. we have to leave now. I understand, but thank you so much for your time. It was a full circle thing for me. I, you introduced me to electronic music. Burning Man really kind of gave me the passion, and then to see you play Burning Man, full circle. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. This was a great honor and privilege. Uh, let us know when this is out, so we can uh, send it out. And, and oh, I will. That and, would be uh, great. On our socials. Thank you so much. Enjoy your dinner, and I look Thank forward you. to whatever you're Thank making you. in the studio. Yeah. And next time uh, uh, we we come to the states, uh, we we play now in in the states soon. But you're not going to be there anyway. Denver. I think I'm going to still try to fly out. We already did Denver? the interview. Yeah, I have friends there. Right. I'm, make, I'm making a trip. I'll let you know. Okay. Let Let us know, uh, and then we hook up. I would love that. Yeah, wonderful. Sure. sure. Thank you much. Peace. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Tell her try your best just to make it quick. Pull my tin to the sink. Cause there must be something she can do. This heart is broken in two. It's a case of emergency There's a patient by the name of Gregory Had to dig deep on this one. Wow. Yep, that's an official Kruder and Dorfmeister. Night Nurse, the cool ruler, Gregory Isaacs. From back in 97. I had to dig deep because that was a... Uh, out out-of-body experience just having the opportunity to sit across the digital glass from those two fine gentlemen talk about their careers talk about their journey listen to them laugh rib each other play the dozens um and take us on all the rabbit holes all the different stories and and painting the picture and you know that was a different kind of interview for me because of course i'm a huge fan for 25 plus years now but i'm not from over there i've never been over there i was not immersed in the the scene that they sprouted out of that they created that they that they built a foundation for um so uh i did my homework you know i was i was in the internet wayback machine the wire magazine article from 97 about the vienna scene 
uh, dove into that and read some sites that had to be translated from from German or Dutch and also you know listen to the music with the big ears and you know this kind of came together relatively quickly I mean I wrote that article over the summer uh, excuse me in the fall right after Burning Man and and then the show in San Francisco so the article came out around middle September and you know Kruderdorfmeister has been omnipresent in my life all this time you know so like I said I trained my whole life for this shit at the same time it came up really quick I pitched the idea of, of doing it at a show but wasn't going to work out zoom it was the very next day and they showed up and they were like you know it took a second much like Rogers with Blind Melon who I didn't know either took a second for us to get the flow but I feel like they were disarming and and jovial and and just an absolute joy to just listen to them wax nostalgic and pontificate and giggle you know and um this music's very personal to me it was a gateway drug for me with electronic music um at a very pivotal embryonic nascent time in my life and much like blind melon has been with me all along so to have an opportunity to actually build with and and reason and and communicate and dialogue with peter and richard it's like life outside of life because back in uh back in 98 ish maybe early 99 the homie ross kaufman who played me fish rift for the first time also uh was the guy to put me on to K&D specifically the K&D sessions and you know we used to do this thing called the route which was where we just like drove in a circle and, and blazed trees it was in my hometown Cherry Hill New Jersey there's like a country club drive it's called <laughs> true story and it's two and a half mile loop with one stop sign so basically uh if you do like you know 27 or so miles an hour it takes you a good while to make the loop so you can make a few loops and you can puff a few bowls or chillums you know that's what we were doing back in those days hand blown glass kid and uh what i remember is that ross played me the K&D sessions as we chiefed you know my Burlington Vermont perp his Colorado tree um and this was so brand new and 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 i i was very new to electronic music like whatsoever i remember i had like the rave till dawn compilation cd which by the way has an incredible shade drum and bass remix remind me to play that on another show but um i digress god hip to k and d through ross eternal thanks much like the fish from vermont we drove the route and and if you were somebody who wanted to find your homies on the route and this goes back to like pre cell phone days uh the route only went in one direction which was uh counterclockwise so if you wanted to meet up with your homies and get baked and you called one of the houses it was like oh yeah Ross picked Brian up because I didn't drive to, in those days at least until I was like 19 story for another time but I always got picked up cuz I had the good grass and uh 
So this is probably, I'm, a, I'm, I'm 20, so I'm driving by then, but Ross was driving on this particular occasion. And, uh, it was like the keys to a new beginning. And I remember like, you know, what I was going to say before is that if you wanted to meet up your homies and they were driving the route, you, you drove clockwise against the route. You drove clockwise and then you could spot your friend's vehicle, pull over, park, hop in and commence route rinse repeat it's a time-honored tradition for the hometown homies so it's also how i got hip to lots of new music because we come home from college you know we just started it in high school it was like passed down from like the older brothers of, of ross and, and other people and bequeathed to us the route so we continued it on and I, I frankly if anyone was still in cherry hill we'd still be routing but uh we we got hip to a lot of music that way. Fat Mama from from uh, Boulder, Colorado was another one Ross brought home. And, you know, LTJ Bookum was one we got into that way. And it's just a really, really uh, fertile time for electronic music. Uh, and, and K&D were pioneers. And I came to San Francisco in 2002. I, I, now I'd loved them for a few years. I had all their CDs. There were three of them. Candy Sessions, DJ Kicks, and G-Stone. Um, and I, my very first night in San Francisco, I flew out here to do a bunch of stuff. I went to Colorado, and then I came out to the Bay, then back to Colorado. It's a big adventure for in the life of a young lion. And uh, BG's big adventure, if you will. So my very first night out in San Francisco, solo mission, went to K&D, first time i ever saw them live they played this place called the galleria which is a very like shishi uh highfalutin kind of joint back then and now you, they don't do they don't do dj stuff there anymore you can get a wedding there or like some kind of special you know palatial ball but um in those days i guess they were doing opulent dj nights and this would fall squarely in that category so I came to San Francisco, like, you know, dropped my bags, Noe Valley, went out and had like a, a like unbelievable experience. You know, I was not hip to club culture or, or really anything of the sort. I was like a fish kid, a deadhead, a beastie boy and uh, showed up K&D at the Galleria and, and it was like a landmark experience for me. I didn't move out here for another decade plus and my first Burning Man was in 2013 and that was really when I waded into the deep end and got you know like neck deep into electronic music and and discovered so much that I had no idea was even going on but the reason I had like the the ears and the and the, the tools to to embrace this new topography was thanks to people like Kruder and Dorfmeister and so, you know, I've been enjoying uh, electronic music ever since in a, in a much more profound way. And so to bring it full circle, K&D, as you heard, went to Burning Man for the first time. We weren't even going to go. We just couldn't figure out how to make it work. But the deluge of, of cheap slash free tickets and then K&D going out there. And yes, as I owned in the interview, that is bad form, bad burner etiquette, but we had uh, gifts to give and, and energy to bring, and, and it, 
and I make no apologies. And we were able to go out there and uh, experience K and D, which you heard it was one of their favorite gigs ever. And so that was just a full circle moment in itself. It was their first burn. It was us going back to the burn. I got to enjoy it with Alicia. K and D is a big soundtrack to our lives. So like, um, it was all that and so much more that I can't even put into words. Um, and to be able to just reflect on that with them in such a way was, was profound, was rewarding, heart filling, inspiring. And I owe it all to Richard and Peter for making the time and sharing the stories and energy and allowing me to, to make this podcast and also that article and just sort of like capture and chronicle an element of my own musical uh, expedition, journey, evolution, and put that into words and put that into podcast format. Um, you know, that that's important. I needed an opportunity and a reason and the stars aligned and here we are. And um, I'm so grateful and got us back to the playa, which was special on other levels. Um, you know, got to take James Casey to the temple and K&D played a role in that. And then you hear about how, you know, their perception of Burning Man going in and what their lived experience was in spite of or because of the rain and the mud and you know, I think I, they probably might have hooked him when I named my article to weather the rain, which is a sample that they use on K&D sessions. But now you're hearing Shaolin Satellite. Uh, in between, we did Black Baby from DJ Kicks. Um, yeah, I've been trying to think about how to wrap this up because like we always do about this time, the Vibe Junkie Jams. And, you know, it's really hard to pick. I've been playing a little of this, a little of that the whole time. We're now on Shaolin Satellite, which was the you know, Fevery Corporation song that K&D remixed and put on uh, DJ Kicks. Um, there was so much I wanted to continue talking to them about. I, I did not even, like, get a third of the way through, like, the topics. But sometimes you just got to, like, play it footloose and fancy free and just have a conversation instead of, like, a question by question interview so that's seems to be how it goes when uh, I talk to my heroes or people that I loved uh, for all my whole life and since I was just a youngster so um, we're gonna go with uh, two songs I feel like two two songs that I could that really like define uh, the sound of Kuderndorfmeister for me as a matter of fact, I think I'm going to go with three. Let's do three. Three is a magic number, right? Two songs that by their hand. And then we should do uh, one song that they like to spin. So I'm going to start with uh, the Count Basic Speechless uh, drum and bass remix by Kruder and Dorfmeister from K&D Sessions. And then I'm going to follow that one up with another track from the K&D Sessions, which is a Useless. So Speechless into Useless. And Useless is a Depeche Mode remix, which is some of the dearest and most sacred of all their work to me, is, is that remix that just emotionally resonant and, and it's dark and foreboding, but also really, really 
like deep and loving and, and, and it's like self-aware and also like self-defeating and also empowering it's it's all the things uh, so i love useless depeche mode KD remix and then i think to bring it on home something i heard them do uh, in san francisco on the 30th anniversary which is a soul-stirring version of or emotional reimagining i think is how i put it in the article roy airs everybody loves the sunshine so it's netski's remix but we get a uh, we get the real thing in the intro. I think I'm going to pull it out of one of their live sets. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to finish with a nod to the great Roy Ayers, Netsky. Everybody loves the sunshine. And that'll do it for episode 75. We hit 30,000 downloads not long ago. Continuing onward and upward. Give thanks for everybody who tunes in, who supports, you know reviews subscribes sends me a few dollars for making you holla give thanks to all y'all i want to say goodbye job bless eternal gratitude richard dorfmeister peter kruder lots of links in the show notes love y'all and we'll see you next time yes indeedy
Everybody loves the sunshine 